We're in Acts chapter 14 today. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Now, for those of you who have been here for as long as I have, almost eight years, I've talked a lot about Chick-fil-A in my times here. And those of you who are new know that I've talked a lot about Chick-fil-A in my times, and I'll probably continue talking about a lot about Chick-fil-A. Those who have been here for the past eight years are probably tired of me talking about Chick-fil-A, but I am never tired about Chick-fil-A. I've worked in lots of different food service establishments in my lifetime. My favorite one to work for was Chick-fil-A. Uh, not only do they have great food, but they have amazing training processes. They have a process down for how to train each worker on how to do their specific job. Now, as I was thinking about what to wear today, normally in, in December, well, after Thanksgiving, up through Christmas, I have a rotation of Christmas ties that I wear. And so I, this was my day to wear this Christmas tie. Uh, but then I was like, oh, I'm going to wear chocolate. I was this close to wearing my Chick-fil-A uniform. <laughs> this close. But I didn't. I opted for Christmas. So Chick-fil-A has processes down for how they train each person in their specific job and how they'll cross-train them in other jobs. But before they train them on the job that they're to do, Chick-fil-A first trains each of their workers on the culture that they want their worker to have. They're explained the culture of Chick-fil-A. They're explained how to act. They're explained what is expected of them once they put on their Chick-fil-A uniform. Because Chick-fil-A wants every single employee to act in a specific way. So that when they're in the store or when they're out and about in the community, if they're wearing their Chick-fil-A uniform or not, they want people to know that this person is an employee of Chick-fil-A. That's their goal. They they have that culture of if you are a Chick-fil-A worker, we want everyone to know beyond a shadow of a doubt by how you act and by how you speak that you are employed by Chick-fil-A. Truett Cathy is quoted by, as saying, we're not just in the chicken business, we're in the people business. We're in the people business. It took me several years to stop acting like a Chick-fil-A worker. Many years. Even longer to drop the my pleasure from my vocabulary. I'd be, people would say, they say thank you, and I'll just automatically be, my pleasure. It has now dropped, but as I'm thinking about my vocabulary, it might come back. To, it probably will come back. Truick took this concept of teaching culture to his workers, of what a worker is supposed to emulate as a follower of the Chick-fil-A standard. He took that concept from his Christian faith. We, as followers of Jesus Christ... If we have come to the point where we have made the decision for ourselves to turn from our sins and trust Jesus alone for our salvation, leaving behind our good works, leaving behind our religious rituals, leaving behind the fact that my family believes, but saying, now I am drawing a line in the sand that I am placing my faith in Jesus Christ. If we have done that, we are called to live distinctively as Christians in a world that is not a Christian. That's why God has placed us in local bodies, local churches, to encourage us in living this godly culture. Because it's, truthfully, it's very hard to live distinctively as Christian in this world and to keep that up day after day after day. Which is why we're doing this series that we're in currently. We're, we're in the past few weeks, in the next few weeks, 
If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon last week or watch it before so you can get caught up in what's going on. The board and I have been praying about the vision of Calvary Bible Church. Previously to this, our tagline has been teaching to live the word of God, which is all well and good, but we're praying about changing it to Calvary Bible Church, discipling, strengthening, encouraging. Last week, we discussed the strengthening part and what it means to strengthen souls. And I do ask that you go back and listen to it so that you can be caught up on what's going on as we, we build this, this, what we want the culture of Calvary Bible Church to be. The first step is strengthening souls. The next step is discipling, which we're going to talk about today. And then the third week, we're going to discuss encouraging. So that's next week, encouraging. And for Sunday school next week, we're actually going to have an open discussion time on what these three concepts, discipling, strengthening, encouraging, means. And what does this look like moving forward and the changes that are happening? We pull these three themes, discipling, strengthening, encouraging, from the, the themes that Paul gave to the persecuted churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 22. Acts 14, 21 to 22. Huh, there we go. And I'm going to read those to you. Acts 14, verses 21 to 22. Paul and his entourage preached the gospel in Derby and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. They said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Then they appointed elders in those churches and committed them to the Lord and kept going. Before we dive in into what it means to disciple, will you pray with me? Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was, who is, and who will be forevermore. The God who created all things, including us. The God who has a standard for right and wrong and holds us to it. And the God who loved us so much that you sent your son to come to earth and live among us and die for us, that whoever believes in you will not perish but of everlasting life. Lord, it is truly an amazing gift you've given that we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation, that is not by works, lest any man should boast, but is by faith coming to Jesus and saying, save me. Thank you for saving me and for so many people in this room. Lord, I pray that you teach us what it means to live as your follower. Teach us what it means to leave the world behind and declare you alone as our sovereign what it means to have our life reflect that. Because Lord, you know it's hard. You know it's hard in this life. Lord, give us that strength, give us that knowledge, and may we make the steps necessary to change our life that it might reflect who you are. Because you, Lord, are worthy. You are worthy of our allegiance. You are worthy of our life. And may we, Lord, make that decision to leave the world behind and only seek you. Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. As I said last week, we uh, began the first point to this sermon, strengthening souls. And I told you this is one sermon spread out over three weeks. 
So last week was point one, strengthening souls. This week is point two, encouraging truth. Encouraging truth. Paul traveled to the persecuted areas there of Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, and he strengthened disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. And that last week we talked about the strengthening the disciples. This week we're going to talk about encouraging them to remain true to the faith. What does this phrase mean? Encouraging them to remain true to the faith. What does it mean? We're going to take it short phrase by short phrase because we can. Paul encourages them. He encourages them. Many times when we think of the word encourage, we might think of someone who's running a race, possibly a marathon, and they're not doing a good job. They're running towards the back. Maybe they get hurt. Maybe they just didn't train well enough. Maybe they're not a runner, and from, from strange reason, they decided to get up and run the marathon this morning, and they wish they hadn't, and they're just dying in the back. And all of a sudden, one of the runners in the beginning comes back and helps that bad runner along. He, he encourages him and lifts him up, says, you can do it, you can do it, encouraging. Perhaps, possibly, when we think of the word encouraging, we think of when we do special music. And, and, and possibly you've done special music, and, and you know you've made at least 25 mistakes in the song. And you get down after service, no one has realized that, only you realize that, but people come up to you and they say, thank you for doing that, it really blessed me, it uplifted me, and by doing that, they're encouraging you, encouraging. All those are nice definitions for encouraging, I like those definitions for encouraging, but that's not the definition for encouraging that Paul is using here. The word encouragement is not the word uplift. The word encouragement here could better be translated urge or exhort. It's not happy-go-lucky lift up. The word has some teeth to it. Your tire is flat. You're stuck on the side of the road trying to change it. Rain is coming down. You're miserable. You've removed the lug nuts from your tire, and you're trying to jerk that tire off of, the, off of the hub, off of there, trying to get it off, and it is not budging. And underneath your breath, you're starting to say some words you probably shouldn't say. And you're pulling, and you're trying to get this tire off, but it isn't happening. And so for some strange reason in your trunk, you've got this huge sledgehammer. <laughs> and you pull it out. And you don't do it the safe way that this guy is doing it. But you pull that sledgehammer and you start wailing on that tire. And you wail on it and you wail on it and you wail on it. Hit, hit, hit. And all of a sudden that tire breaks three. What you did is you exhorted that tire. You urged that tire. You put pressure on that tire so that that tire would do what it was supposed to do. That is the word that Paul is using here. Paul urges. He exhorts, he encourages the individuals of these churches. Not the uplifting one, but a word that has teeth and power to it. And what is he encouraging them to do? To remain true to the faith, is what he says. We can simply state the obvious, the, fa the faith that he's talking about is Christianity. It's shorthand at this time that if you are part of the faith, you were a Christian, and that shorthand has been used up the past 2,000 years to remain true to Christianity. But what does remain true mean? It is a nice vanilla word that could be translated persistence. Persistence. Truthfully, Christianity is very, very hard 
to keep up when painful times occur. It is. Christianity is very, very hard to keep up in a world that doesn't like our message or the lives that we live based on it. Christianity is not an easy path to follow. The residents of Lystra had already seen Paul die for his belief. And now they have placed their faith in Christ themselves and they're facing that same possible result. Death right there. It's not easy. Remain true speaks of persistence in faith in spite of pressing temptations, in spite of things pulling you from one way to the other. This is the little engine that could, that was puffing up the hill. Well, it didn't think it could. It could have just given up like everyone else, but it kept saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And the wheels started slowing down and slugging up as it kept inching up the hill, and it could have stopped. It could have said everyone else who was stronger didn't make it, but it kept going. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. This remain true speaks of pilgrim and faithful in, in, in the great book Pilgrim's Progress and they're trudging on their way to the celestial city and they come to this town of Vanity Fair and they're tempted on all sides to buy all sorts of different things and indulge in that and this great desire to take part in materialism and morality but pilgrim and faithful say no we're not going to do it we're going to refuse it even though oh we are so tired it'd just be too too easy to get that enjoyment over there and find this rest over there and i really want to but no i'm going to keep going i'm going to remain true and faithful in that story dying for that decision and pilgrim heading towards celestial city utterly alone because of that decision Paul exhorts the Christians there. He urges them with power and teeth to it to persist in their faith in spite of pressing temptations. This phrase that Paul is using, this urging that is happening, telling them, hey, you have made the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior. You've set off on the straight and narrow way Keep on it. Keep on it is what he's saying. This process, this, this theme is the theme of discipleship. Of Paul taking this fledging church on the wing and says, this is the path you need to go. Stick with it no matter what. Discipleship. Discipleship is the process of leading someone to and through a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. The word disciple speaks of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the disciple and leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. A lot of words, what's he saying? The Pharisees came to Jesus many times with this one complaint, and they came multiple times. They would say, hey, Jesus, we see the disciples of John doing things over here that are good and according to the law. We don't like John, but his disciples are great. But your disciples, Jesus, Peter, James, John, all these other people, they're not following the law. They're doing things that shouldn't happen. They're eating grain on the Sabbath. They're not washing their hands. They're horrible. Do something about it, Jesus. Now, I find it fascinating that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw these two groups of disciples, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the disciples of John were following John because of their actions. 
They looked over and they knew these disciples of Jesus, beyond a shadow of a doubt, were disciples of Jesus by their actions. It wasn't that they were wearing name tags saying, hi, my name's Peter, I'm a disciple of Jesus. It was their actions that made it clear. And then when the Pharisees said, we don't like what the disciples are doing, they don't go to the disciples. They go to Jesus. They go to the master. Because at this time, if you were a disciple of someone, you were expected to do what, the, what your master told you to do. And you weren't expected to change your action, even if no one liked it, because you were doing what your master was doing. And so when the Pharisees wanted the disciples to change, they didn't go to the disciples, they went to the master and said, we know the disciples are doing what you have told them to, because that's what a disciple does. A disciple lives in a way that screams to the world around, this is my master, and I'm doing what he has told me to do. So the Pharisees go to the master. Discipleship. Discipleship. Well, if we talk about discipleship, this encouraging to remain true to the faith, there are two parts to discipleship. There's discipleship to faith. But before I can talk about discipleship to faith, I need to mention one small thing. And the one small thing that I need to mention is that everyone makes disciples. Everyone does. Last week, I mentioned that biblically, not everyone can be a teacher. Not everyone has the gift of teaching. Not everyone has the character or the qualities of a teacher. James writes this in James chapter 3, verse 1, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Not everyone should be teachers. It shouldn't be. However, everyone is commanded to disciple. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. After he has died and resurrected, he appeared to a whole bunch of different people. He's now on the mountain in Galilee by the seashore, and he's about to ascend, and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He's not just telling the apostles. He's telling it to 500 people who are his disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I just mixed in the King James there. Part of the flaws of our current tagline here, teaching to live the truth, live the word of God, is we never defined what teaching is and what teaching was. Formal teaching, like preaching, what I'm doing, Sunday school leading, that's, that's a subset of the larger idea of discipleship. Not everyone is supposed to be a teacher in this subset, but everyone is commanded to be part of the larger disciple. We are all commanded to disciple. How do we do it? What is, what is this? The first step of discipleship is through evangelism. The first way we disciple is through evangelism. We disciple people to Jesus. I think about Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus calls the crowd around him along with his disciples. So there are people who are followers of him and a whole bunch of people who are not. And he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He is saying, hey, my disciples over here, all you have not made the decision yet. So I'm giving you a process of what it means to take that step to become my disciple. It's a very condensed process. We could talk about it someday. But he's teaching them, he's discipling them on the steps on to become a disciple. I think about Peter in Athens. This is a story that becomes more and more relevant to me in today's society here in America. He, he comes to a pagan city 
that has not had much interaction with the God of the Bible. They have a lot of interaction with a lot of other pagan idols, but not much interaction with Yahweh, the one true God. And Peter stands up in Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. Peter stands up there in the meeting of the Areopagus, the philosopher's circle there. And he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with its inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For from one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that he would, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul comes to this pagan society, and in order to share them the gospel of Jesus, he first teaches them about who God is, because they have no idea. And he tells them about creation, and he tells them about how God has dealt with the world for the past 6,000 years before that, until finally he brings Jesus in at the very end. He disciples the people of Athens in order that he might lead them to become disciples. I think about the early church. They lived incarnationally in their community, as we talked about several Sundays before we go, and, and I was thankful that the church is incarnational. They took every opportunity to share the gospel and teach people about Jesus. All throughout that, they did good works that they might say, this is why I'm doing good works. And then when someone said, you know what? I like what you're doing, and I like the man you're serving, Jesus. I want to place my faith in him. And that person starts attending church. That person is taught or discipled for another two years in the foundations of the faith in the early church before the church says, you know what? We can tell that you actually believe what you say believe, believe. And then that person is baptized. From the moment of, I, I think I'm placing my faith in Jesus, two years of discipleship and training until baptism. Because they wanted to make sure that this person knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what they believed in a world where there's so much bad teachings about truth and godliness. Evangelism as discipleship. But how do we do it? If we are all called to be disciple makers, to disciple people to Jesus, how do we do it? Peter writes simply in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter, in this verse, is not talking He's not talking about apologetics. 
of being able to prove that the Bible is real, to be a prove that Jesus raised from the dead, prove this, prove that. He's not talking about it. He's saying, give an answer for the hope that is within you. We live in a world where so many people do not have hope. And we can, there's fatalism all around us. Fatalism about elections. Fatalism about politicians. Fatalism about economics, fatalism about culture, fatalism about this, fatalism about that. And we can so easily fall into the fatalistic thinking of the individuals around us. But we are those who have hope. God has given us hope, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ and the fact that he has saved us and we didn't have to lift a finger to do anything about it. And he has promised us eternity and we don't have to lift a finger to keep ourselves going there because he has sealed us and we know that eternity is coming that is filled with perfection that we didn't do anything for. And he says it's yours, it's a gift. That is hope. And so we live with hope in a world that has no hope and we serve with hope and we love with hope and we constantly tell people about our hope. It's truly like this season where so many people are grieving and in pain So many people are worried about months that are coming up and to be able to stand up in all that fatalism and depression and despair with a smile on our face and say, wow, I'm so grateful today's a good day. I'm so grateful I know what the future holds. I'm so grateful that all the pain I'm having right now doesn't really affect me. It's there, but Jesus is on the throne. And that presents such a change from what people normally hear. I always encourage people to figure out a three-second and a 30-second and a three-minute testimony and to prepare that beforehand, to be constantly thinking about it so that no matter what situation we're in, we have what we're going to say right there. If we're on an elevator going up to the third floor, we got three seconds and we can tell people a story of hope. Or if we have a little longer time, 30 seconds, half a minute with someone on a, in a checkout line, and we get to tell people a story of hope. Or we get a little longer minute, time, three minutes, and we get to tell people a story of hope because people need hope. And we, get, we have that hope, and so we can just give the reason for it. And if you need help of what that looks like in your life, talk to me about it. I love technology, and I love talking about hope. So it's great things. One of the reasons we have a Testimony Sunday is so that we can grow comfortable sharing these stories of our hope. It's uncomfortable for us. We'd rather talk about sports. We'd rather talk about crops. We'd rather talk about weather. We'd rather talk about everything else except the hope that is within us. And that's our sinfulness in us. But we have these Testimony Sundays so that we can grow comfortable talking about that hope. And if we can grow comfortable talking with fellow believers, And so it becomes natural for us here, we can then take it out there. Unfortunately, the past couple of years, at the beginning, I used to prime the pump and I'd talk about six people a couple weeks before those services and say, hey, whether you like it or not, you're going to be sharing in a couple weeks. And they'd have time to to, to figure it out and they'd prime the pump and after they'd share their stories, other people would pop up and share stories of hope. I've stopped doing that the past couple years because we we were going. But then those stories have started to dwindle and we've stopped talking. And so, just warning, upcoming Testimony Sundays, I'm gonna start priming the pump again (laughs) so that we can get back used to talking about the hope that we have and the reason behind it, the God who has saved us. Discipleship to faith. 
Um, discipleship through faith. Once someone comes to faith in Jesus, we're then called to continue to disciple them. Growth is required in Christianity. There is no such thing as staying still. No one stays still in the Christian faith. They're either going towards Christ or they're going away from Christ. There's no stagnation. Anything that's stagnant grows mold. When we met Jesus, when we turned from our sins and trusted him alone to save us, we're entering into a discipleship relationship with him. Discipleship. I've talked a lot about discipleship today. Discipleship is an unconditional commitment to Jesus. It's saying, you're my master, and I'm going to model my life after you. It's interesting that when Jesus walked on this earth, um, discipleship was a big thing in Greek and Roman culture. You, you, had, you had the master and, the, and his disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one. There was a whole bunch of teachers walking around Israel at this time and Greece and Rome and their little contingents of little disciples following them, taking notes as they went. When someone gained a disciple, they would use the word discipulus, and it means to teach or to disciple. To teach or to disciple. It can be translated both ways. And it spoke of giving information to one's brain so that someone could regurgitate it. So these teachers, these masters, would travel around Israel, would travel around Greece, and, and, and they would teach. And all these people there would have their, their notebooks out, and they would take notes and everything, and, and, and they would memorize it. And so when they were out in the community, they'd be able to say, my teacher says this, and they'd regurgitate that thought or their philosophy. It's like going to school. Is school like that? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> that's, that's what they did. Jesus, it's interesting to note, in the New Testament, Jesus never uses the term discipulus to teach or to disciple in speaking of his ministry. When he called people, he never said, come, let me change your mind. He used the word, come follow me. Come follow all these other disciples who were following all these other teachers were filling their minds with facts and philosophies that they could regurgitate and pass on. This is what my master says. But their lives could... Jesus said, follow me. Model your life after mine. I don't want to just reach your mind. I want to change everything about you. He says... In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, Walk with me as we share a yoke. Match your step with my step as I lead you down this path of life until finally eternity comes. Not just a mind, but a complete way of life. So how, what is this means of discipleship? One, once we come to our faith in Jesus and say, I'm following you with my life because you have saved my soul. I'm leaving everything else behind. It's just me and you, Jesus. How do we grow our whole life so that it mimics him? So that the world around us, not just when they see us talk, but how, they, how we live knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is our master and no one else. What are the means of that discipleship? Well, means through teaching. This is where we finally get to teaching. For those who love teaching, here it is, teaching. 
Paul writes in a book that we spent two years studying in 1 Corinthians 14, 31. He says, for we can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And there we have that fussy little word, prophesy. And I'm already five minutes over, I'm sorry. <laughs> Scripturally speaking, so when we, when, we, when we talked about 1 Corinthians 14, you can go back and, and watch, watch the sermon and all that. We discussed prophecy in length, and we defined prophecy, how it's defined biblically and how it's been defined for the past 2,000 years up until recently. Scripturally, prophecy is speaking the message of God simply. The prophet confronted the people of this world, whether they were followers of God or not, about their lives. And he told them what it means to live godly and the consequences for not living godly. Sometimes the prophet used future predictions to give support to his message, but the focus was never the future predictions. You can tear prophecy apart in the Bible from the Old Testament and New Testament, backwards and forwards. The focus was never the future predictions. The focus was always about the present, calling people to follow God and to live like they're followers of God. We could talk about John in Revelation, huge prophecy book, but the focus was not, is not the prophecy. The focus was God's, Jesus' message to those seven churches and then consequently to us saying, hey, my plans will happen. Are we going to live like they're going to happen? Prophecy. The, whole, the prophet was a Holy Spirit-inspired teacher or preacher. So the prophecy or teaching done within the service that Paul is talking about here that was that everyone might be instructed and encouraged. Look at that same word, encouraged. It's not uplifted. It's the word with teeth in it. Urge, exhort to remain true. Teaching is a means of discipleship. That's why we have lengthy, meaty sermons, and I go over sometimes, because we want discipleship, also because I like to talk and see my sister squirm. <laughs> That's why we have pop-up Bible studies and special focuses. We've had discipleship on finances and parenting and marriage. That's why we have Sunday schools. We can only model our lives after Jesus if we know what the Bible actually says about Jesus and how he lived. So we have to have the teaching. Teaching is a means of discipleship. But teaching isn't the only means. A huge means of discipleship is mentoring. Unfortunately, so many churches and so many older Christians have forgotten this means of discipleship. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Titus 2, 1 to 8. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The NIV uses the word teach a whole bunch of times through this passage, but it's, only, it's actually the word speak, and it's only used once at the beginning. The rest of it is all descriptions on how people live, and that way of life impresses on those who are younger how they're supposed to live. The older, impressing a lifestyle on the younger. Discipleship. That's how we have, why we have the youth mentoring program. So that the older people can impress a lifestyle on the youngers. But it, it, it's not just, that's, that's focused on the youth, the teenagers in this church. 
And if you're not part of it, let me know. We'll get you hooked up to it. But it needs to be for everyone because we got a whole bunch of young, young families here and people who are newly starting out in marriage and they need those who are older, who are more seasoned to come alongside them and teach them this is how you love your husband. This is how you love your wife even when you hate them right now. This is how you do it. This is how you can raise your kids and godly. And you might say, oh, but I've made a mess of it. I, I, they don't, I don't have anything to give them because I've just made a mess in my life. Have you seen my kids? That's not me talking. Okay, okay. <laughs> the older people say those sorts of things. But even through those, you've learned wisdom. And those who are younger need the wisdom that you have to give. Don't hold it in. Pick someone. Pray that God would show you someone. And when he does, latch on to that person and say, let me live life for you, with you. Let me show you what it means to be godly through this time. The younger generation, 40 years down and 50 years, I don't know. The younger generation, however old you are, whoever's younger than you, they need you. They need you. Mentoring is when someone purposefully, intentionally spends time with someone else in order to push that person to maturity. Remember the sledgehammer? Encouragement. That's what you use. Mentoring is a very important means of discipleship. But another important means is example. Example. Mentoring is purposeful and intentional. However, sometimes mentoring happens when you don't realize it because people are watching all the time. I tried to get a picture of my father-in-law with his binoculars looking out the window at me, but he kept moving. People are watching how we live. People are watching how we act. People are watching our priorities and our desires. People are watching what our idols are. People are watching how we sin and how we repent from it, if we repent of it. People are watching. I don't want to make you paranoid, but people are watching. Whether we like it or not, they are watching. They're modeling their lives because of us. Some of them are modeling their lives because they want to be like us. Some of them are modeling their lives because they don't want to be like us. Some teenagers are growing up in today's society and they're saying, we don't want to have anything to do with my parents because I saw their life and they're jetting out once they're 18 because they're sick of it and they say, I don't want to be anything like them. That is a reaction to a bad example. Paul wrote this in Philippians 4, 9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Can you imagine the guts of Paul? He says, how you see me live, that's how you live. And if you live exactly how I'm living, you're gonna be more godly. Can any of us say that? I couldn't. But we should be living in a way that others can grow in discipleship just by watching us. If you're married, can people understand how better to love their wife by watching you husband? If you're married, can people understand how better to respect your husband? Did I say that correctly? No, okay, well. If your husband, can they see how to love the wife better? If your wife, can they see how to respect the husband better? Just by watching you. Because people are watching, whether they're your kids or someone else. People are watching. Can they see how to grow together tenaciously toward unity? Can people see how to act Christianly while interacting with neighbors and others in the community saying, oh, this person who claims to be a Christian is doing this, therefore I will too. Can they see how to act Christianly when life is filled with disappointment? Can they see how to act Christianly in the political realm when things are how we like them and when things are not how we like them? 
Can they say, this person's a follower of Christ and they're responding this way? Can they say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is how a Christ follower should react to that situation? People are watching us. We're discipling whether we realize it or not and we better start realizing it and live accordingly. Building off that idea, not only are we discipled by watching others, but we are discipled as we seek God through the roller coaster of this life. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Discipleship happens as we interact, yes, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we go through the teaching and we go through the mentoring and we pick examples of people we want to follow. All of those sorts of things. But discipleship also happens on our own as we intentionally pursue a relationship with our creator. Jesus went through all these sufferings in life, all through his life, not just on the cross. And through it all, he constantly saw his heavenly father. We are called to a life of following Jesus imitating our life, imitating him with our life. And this requires spending time with him, not just randomly through the week, but intentionally spending time with our master every day. That's what a disciple does. Going, attending teaching, having a mentor example, I will, I will talk to him, my face is blue that all those things are important, but I'll also talk till my face is blue that spending intentionally time with Jesus every single day is important. Because truthfully, if we are intentionally spending time with Jesus, we will grow to be more like him through prayer and Bible study. But if we are not intentionally spending time with Jesus, we will not grow to be like him. So my question is, yes, we might be saved. We've placed our faith in him. He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit. But if we are not intentionally spending time with him, can we claim to be his disciple? can we? You see, we are a disciple to something. The thing we spend time with is the thing that we are following. The thing we spend time with is the thing that we are worshiping. Too often, even though we claim to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, instead of following and worshiping him, we are following and worshiping some other idol. Whether it is the idol of work, or the idol of busyness, the idol of family, the idol of school, the idol of activities, the idol of rest, the idol of escape, the idol of all these other things. What we spend time with is that which we want to disciple us. There are a lot of people I talk with that say, and I urge them, are you spending time with Jesus every day? And they say, I don't have time for that. That is an idol issue. They're worshiping something else and saying, I want something else to disciple me. The same can be true of getting discipleship through teaching, coming to church. People say, I don't have enough time for it. That's an idol issue. Who are we following? Who are we spending time with? What does it say that is our discipler? May it be Jesus. And then may we turn around and take what we have learned from him and disciple others to Jesus before and through faith until Christ finally calls us home. A privilege of a disciple is remembering Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross.